Section 3 of The Man on the Meteor by Ray Cummings. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Krista Zaleski. The Man on the Meteor. Part 3. I take up my narrative at a point some four or maybe five months, as you hear on Earth Measure Time, after Nona and I entered the world of the Marinoids. The human memory retains only high spots clearly and those four or five months held nothing which now impresses itself strongly upon me. Then came the great event for me and Nona that I could never forget. You shall hear of it in a moment, and you shall hear how it was followed by a series of adventures, the memory of which even now makes me thrill as I thrilled then with the hot blood of youth. First, you will want a brief description of these marinoids with whom we took up our life, a sketch of what befell us during those four or five months. You will recall that I had been knocked unconscious by a blow on the head. When I recovered, the ruler of that world had passed on his way, and our captors were again dragging us forward. We came presently to a city. A city, you say? A city under water. Why not? By a city, I mean a closely knit collection of human dwellings, where a large number of people lived closely together. Is that not a city? This one was the capital of the Marinoid world. They called it Rax a brusque, somewhat guttural monosyllable, which I write with those three letters. There we took up our abode, with the leader of this Marinoid party which had captured us. There we learned the Marinoid language, and became a part of the Marinoid civilization, with friends and enemies, hopes, fears, and despairs. As I have already told you, our own spoken language was no more than at its beginning. We turned to that of the Marinoids readily, and within a few months, it was, to all intents and purposes, native to us. That you may understand this point, I remind you again that our intellects were matured but unused. We learned like precocious children. More than that, this contact with other beings with minds like our own brought us rapidly up from the primitive mental state in which I have previously pictured us. We learned that one great trait of civilization. Deceit. But I thank my Creator. There still remained in us a simplicity— a directness of thought and action, which somehow seems to lessen in so-called civilization. The mode of life. You will picture us then, Nona and me, as we were at the end of those months with the Marinoids. We lived in a dwelling near the bottom and outer edge of the city of Rax. The bottom of the city, a strange term. Let me explain. Here on earth, you live in a world you call three dimensions, length, breadth, and thickness. By that, you mean your bodies and all material objects comprise three dimensions. Perfectly right. But you live on the surface of a globe. In general, with exceptions, of course, your actions take place in but two dimensions. Your birds move in three dimensions more than you do, and your fishes. Fishes, there you see my point. In the marinoid world of water, to move vertically came as naturally as the horizontal movement. Hence, I say the bottom of the city for Rax had a vertical dimension almost as great as either of its others. The city was, I should estimate, of roughly circular form, some quarter of a mile long and nearly as broad, like a huge low cylinder standing on end. It was a fibrous city of growing sea vegetation, huge stalks planted like a thick forest of trees in the sandy ooze of the water bottom grew straight upward a thousand feet or more. Broad, leaf-like branches spread from them at the top, sustained in an upright position by air bladders. These upright stalks were the vertical girders upon which the fabric of the city was built. For eight hundred feet up they were pruned of their branches. 
Parasite growing vines had been guided laterally to connect the vertical stalks, and upon these, other rope-like vegetation was woven. The result was a series of tiers some twenty feet apart, one above the other, forty of them from top to bottom of the city. The tiers were further cut up into segments which served as houses. I shall describe one in detail presently, the one they gave Nona and me at the time our great event took place. Throughout the city, there were both vertical and horizontal streets at intervals, up and down and along which the inhabitants swam or drifted, and occasionally there was a cubicle open space, a sort of three-dimensional park. One of these, the largest, occupied the exact centre of the city, with the ruler's home contiguous to it. Have I made myself clear? The fabric of this entire city, the very walls and rooms of its honeycombed houses, was living, growing vegetation of the sea. It grew rapidly. It was easily trained to grow in desired directions. A third of a man's lifetime, no more, would grow such a city as this. One species of vegetation? No, there seemed a hundred. And each of them had its specific use and adaptability. It was curious stuff. You have marine vegetation in your great oceans of earth. You may conceive what this was like. Tough, smooth, somewhat slimy main stalks. But porous. Like the stalk of your banana tree. The leaves were intricate and beautifully shaped, and there were millions of tiny air pods growing everywhere. When I first saw the city of racks, I remember marveling at the ingenuity that could build it. But soon I marveled at the greater ingenuity that could maintain its interior form. The main stalks changed little from year to year, but a constant pruning, altering, uprooting, and replanting was necessary throughout every detail. The very walls of a man's house were of varying form. Yet, since each man was responsible for his own, it was easily done. Above the city, the great branches of the main stalks spread out, green-brown, wavering things, a lacework of great ferns with hundreds of pods twice as big as a man's body, the air bladders which sustained the entire city. The eternal calm. I have said the water was calm. Not a ripple down here, save those made by the animate things themselves. Nature was passive. The half-twilight never altered. The temperature remained always the same. No storms, not a sound of the world disturbed its peace and calm. Thus stood the city of racks, tenuous wavering gently throughout its every fibre, a city which, with one of your earth swords, I could have cut loose from its moorings and slashed to destruction. And you shall hear how one day I did something like that to a similar city. Not destroyed it, indeed, merely. But first I must tell you what happened before the coming of Boy. Our Boy, known as and mine. Our little son. Chapter 2 We lived first in the home of Cain the leader of the Maronoid party which captured us. He was in charge of gathering the shell food from the water bottom in the open spaces beyond the city. I must sketch all this briefly. There is so much to tell you. We were at first curiosities to the Maronoids, but we proved our friendliness, and when we learned their language they made us welcome among them. Our history, what little we had to tell them of the outer world of air, the meteor, the heavens, the great universe of which we are all so infinitesimal apart, None of this could they comprehend. But, and you of earth mark me well, these Maronoids did not scoff. They were not unduly credulous either. Their ruler sent for me, and with a thousand ingenious questions sought to test the truth of my words. I am sure now that it was this knowledge I held, of things they had never dreamed of, which raised me to a position of importance among the Maronoids. 
that and my physical prowess, which very shortly I was forced to demonstrate. At all events, I did become a figure of importance in Rax. The ruler, an hereditary monarch whom I shall call king for simplicity, consulted with me frequently after a few months. When Boy was born, they gave us our own home. Cain had been very good to us. We counted him our best friend. He swam about the city with Nona and me, helping us to select from among the vacant dwellings. Can you picture us upon such a journey? The horizontal streets were like square tunnels, twenty feet broad and equally as high. Top and bottom a tangle of woven green-brown vegetation, carefully pruned, sides formed by the rows of houses. There were windows and doors to the houses, with removable screens of vegetation. The streets were artificially lighted. In the open water outside the city there was enough light inherent to the water itself to give a sort of twilight. But within the city, shut in by all this vegetation, it would have been too dark for comfort. At intervals along the streets, a transverse strand of vine was stretched. From it hung a huge pod, half as big as a man, perhaps. The pod was a vegetable air-bladder of a variety whose walls were exceedingly thin and translucent. From these pods, which hung like lamps, a greenish-silver glow emanated. It spread downward in a ray of illumination through the water of the street. It cast queer, blurred, monstrous shadows of the marinoids swimming past it. You will be interested to know what that light was. Small, self-luminous organisms were gathered from the open water and placed, hundreds of them, in the translucent pods. Similar organisms to these formed the familiar phosphorescence of the tropical waters of your Earth, but these were much larger, more the size of your glowworms. Marinoids at home. We swam slowly along. A few marinoids were in the streets, passing us as they went to their occupations. From a window or the bottom of a doorway, a naked child would peer at us with big, curious eyes. In a horizontal street of more pretentious houses, where the tunnel deepened to two stories, a woman sat in the corner of a little balcony, nursing her infant. Beside her, two older children played a game with shining opalescent shells. We turned upward into a vertical street. You would call it a huge elevator shaft. Its lights were fastened to the sides of buildings. Here the houses were one on top of another, a single low story only, and very long horizontally. Nona did not like them. One was vacant here, and Kane suggested it, but she refused it decisively. I had no opinion to offer. They all looked all right to me. We swam upward and soon reached the central cube of open space. Here was the ruler's palace. Open water surrounded it on all four sides and on top. The main stalks of the building grew above it, with graceful hovering fronds of green, fronds whose smallest pods were luminous, like a hundred tiny Chinese lanterns, under which, on the roof of the building, was a garden. There were small plants growing there, gleaming white shells laid out in designs, a bed of black ooze with brilliant red things like flowers growing in it. A row of small illuminated pods formed a parapet to the rooftop. The main building was not as large as the term palace sounds. It was not over fifty feet in its greatest dimension. It had both vertical and horizontal balconies, and a broad horizontal doorway near the top, a doorway built of shimmering iridescent shells plastered together with mud and a gluey substance which was made from one of the marinoid plants. And on a tiny platform by the doorway lay the shell sleigh with its marine animal and its driver in waiting, the sleigh in which I had first seen the king. It was to us a magnificent dwelling. This palace, 
Nona and I floated before it, gazing with awe. But my heart sank, for I knew that now, once Nona had seen it, we should have much more difficulty in selecting our own humble little home. It was, indeed, almost the time of sleep before Nona made her choice. She selected a two-story house at the intersection of a horizontal with a vertical street. It had one room upstairs and two downstairs. Small rooms, you would call them, no more than fifteen feet cube. But the house had a little horizontal balcony upstairs. On it, Nona could lie and watch the people passing. And Kane told us that these streets were on the route the king habitually used when leaving the city with his equipage. I think it was the balcony that decided Nona. For myself, I was pleased because we were only a very short distance from the home of Cain. Our room of sleep had bunks built into the walls, bunks which were soft with a springy glowing mass of mattress, a grey-white growth which you would call a sponge. There was a large ornamental shell standing like a table in the centre of the room, and a window giving on to the balcony and the street. The window had a leafy swinging blind for privacy. Ventilation. For ventilation we left the window open. Ventilation, you say. Ventilation in a city of water, most assuredly. Your most humble fish will die without fresh water. We were using the air held in solution by the water, and fresh water with new air was constantly necessary. Once, after each time of sleep, the whole city was ventilated. Swimming animals, sleek shining things of brown with slimy bodies like wet seals, pulled a sort of shield rapidly back and forth through the streets. The shield was large, it almost filled the street. Its movement stirred the water, pulled the water by suction into the city from outside. I was describing our house, but there is so much to tell you I must be briefer. Downstairs we had circular shells to recline in, and a place to store and prepare our food. And every room was lighted with a pod which had a green moss shade that could envelop it when darkness was desired. Nona was delighted with the house, and immediately began planning a hundred ways to improve it. The place was in good repair, but there was much pruning and retraining of the vegetation to be done. And then, when we had slept in the house but once, and were both busily engaged with our own affairs, Og came to see us. He came to see Nona, I should say, for certainly I never liked him. His coming was the immediate cause of my being forced to display my physical strength, to which occasion I have already alluded. I fought Og twice, the first time in a pretentious hand-to-hand -hand combat before the king's palace, which attracted the attention of the entire city. It was a queer combat, unfortunate for me. I shall tell you about it at once. Chapter 3 Og stood in our little doorway, talking to Nona. He was a young man about my own age. I have since learned he was not full-blooded Marinoid, but that can come later. He was somewhat taller than Nona, but shorter than myself. His legs, with their connecting membrane, were bared to slightly above the knee. From there to his shoulders he was dressed in the characteristic Marinoid fashion, a single-piece garment of green-woven grass. On his bulging chest he wore an ornament, a flat circular affair of many tiny shells linked together. His four tentacle-like arms waved before him. The hair on his head was thick and matted, but short. With one of his pinchers he would occasionally brush it, a gesture evidently intended to impress Nona with his grace. Og's face, with features not much different from my own, except that his mouth was larger and his eyes slightly protruding, was nevertheless most unpleasant. His chin was weak, his expression egotistical, and more than that, I never liked the way he looked at Nona. A queer sort of being, this Marinoid, for me to be jealous of. If you are thinking that, you are wholly wrong. We were living in a Marinoid world, 
And in all that world, only Nona and I were queer-looking. It was we who were abnormal, not they. Nona, with her flowing hair and her short grey-green marinoid jacket, was to me the most beautiful creature in the world. But, as Cain pointed out, our eyes, Nona's and mine, were set too deep in our head to be of real use in seeing sidewise. Our mouths were too small to admit the water comfortably, and our chests too small and immobile to handle it properly. Two arms, which could bend in only one direction, were surely not so advantageous as the four marinoid arms, and our legs, without the connecting membrane, would keep us always very indifferent swimmers. This was before I demonstrated my muscular strength. Cain changed his opinion a little after that. The insult. I have wandered from Og. Nona unwittingly attracted him, in spite of her physical handicaps. I know why, now. He was a half-breed. The blood in his veins, which was not marinoid, barred him from finding a mate among the marinoid women. And when Nona came, he wanted her. I did not know this at the time, but I sensed it. And Nona, too, was afraid of Og, though she had not shown it outwardly. I was in the other room this time when Og came to our new home. He stood there talking to Nona, and suddenly I heard her scream. I launched myself in a dive through the inner doorway. They were up near the ceiling, and Nona was struggling with him. He was laughing. He dropped her and came swimming down to face me, still grinning insolently. She is tempting, he said. She has learned the ways of the marinoid women very quickly. I swam at him, but he avoided me. And before I could seize him, Cain appeared in my doorway and stopped me. Nona was crying. Cain would let me do nothing. Physical altercations were a dire offense in racks. I could report Og for trial and punishment, but I could not personally attack him. In his insolent confidence, however, Og did the one thing I would have wanted. He swam at me and struck me lightly in the face with the side of his left front arm. It was not so different from one of your old customs here on earth. He had challenged me to public combat. A duel? Call it that if you wish. Cain made all the arrangements. We were to fight after the next time of sleep, in the open cube before the king's palace, with the king, queen, and young prince on the palace roof to judge us. Nona was frightened. She cried all that day. At Cain's suggestion, we slept that next time in his home, where his wife—I use the term wife, although it is inapplicable—could care for Nona. The combat was to be without artificial weapons, and in spite of Nona's feminine fear, I could not take it seriously. I was only twenty, you will remember and youth is absurdly confident in itself. Cain, however, was very grave. I did not know it at the time, but the combat was intended to be to the death. Og understood it so, and the whole city was stirred by it. As for the king, it would be an interesting sport for him as spectator. A thousand times of sleep had passed since such a sight had been offered. Cain was very kindly to me that evening, solicitous and perturbed. Once he started to question me about my methods of fighting. Youth is so foolish. I laughed at him. I shall twist him in my hands before he can touch me, I said boastfully. We will not talk of it now, my friend Kane. It frightens my Nona. At once he subsided. He had indeed something important to tell me. But my words chanced to make him think I knew it. The marinoid is by nature reticent. He will force nothing upon you. Offer no advice that you do not solicit. I was, as it happened, entirely ignorant of this thing he feared. Had I not been, I should have looked forward to the combat with alarm and probably terror. Nona would not go to the scene, but Cain went to represent me, and he lay on the palace roof beside the king. The scene of the fight. 
The cube of water was a brilliant gay arena. Illuminated air bladders were hanging from the palace balconies and from the foliage above its roof garden. Everywhere about the cube, top and bottom and all four sides, these lanterns were banked in rows, so that the open water in which we were to fight was a bright greenish glare of light. On the rooftop there were perhaps ten marinoids in addition to the royal family. They were reclining behind the row of lamps, and these lamps were shaded like footlights of one of your theatres. Across the cube, facing the palace, were a few balconied houses of the more important inhabitants of the city. Their lights, too, were shaded to throw the beams outward toward the open water. These balconies were all crowded with marinoid men and women. At every street entrance to the cube, other marinoids were crowded. A hundred or more of them lay prone on the lower surface, their gaze directed upward. And above, a swarm of others clung to the roof of the arena, or hovered in the foliage, staring downward. The king's sleigh was gone from its platform. A group of his guards stood there instead. Occasionally one would swim out to warn back a trespasser. When Cain and I arrived, the figure of Og, nude save for a loincloth, was hovering alone near the center of the open water. His legs were moving very slowly. His four arms were waving as he sustained himself. Every eye in the crowd was upon him. His face bore a confident, leering smile, the challenger waiting for his opponent. Shouts arose as Cain and I pushed forward through the crowd. Cain took my outer garment, and with a grave word of encouragement, left me. My gaze followed him as he swam upward to join the king's party. A hush fell upon the crowd. The water now was soundless. Then suddenly Og called to me, a sneering shout of defiance. My youthful blood flowed hot with anger. I was not afraid. I was sorry Nona was not here to see me fight. Slowly I mounted upward through the empty water to meet Og. And then the queen did a curious thing. Her soft but commanding voice rang out over the stillness. She ordered me up to the rooftop. I obeyed, hovering respectfully before her. I hope that you will win, she said softly, yet loud enough so that all might hear. You are badly equipped to fight, but you are in the right. There was some applause, for Og was not popular in racks, but she silenced it. Go, do your best. She dismissed me with a gesture. As I was turning away, my heart swelling with pride at the incident, the young prince— he was about my own age and had already shown some liking for me. Called out softly but vehemently. Nemo, do not let him touch your head and feet at the same time. No, I said, and I thank you both. I swam slowly back to meet Og. I had no idea what the prince meant, but I followed his warning as well as I could. Until, in the heat of the fight, as you shall see, I forgot it. Og was waiting, facing me alertly. His arms and legs had ceased waving, his body was tense. He was sinking slowly downward. I followed him down with no more than ten feet separating us. I wondered when he would come at me. I would wait, then grip him around his chest and crush him with my superior strength. The silence in that bright, glaring water was oppressive. We were sinking nearly to the bottom of the arena. Without warning, I doubled my body and dove forward, rushing at Og with all of the strength I could put into my swimming strokes. Chapter 4 I was a good swimmer. There are none like me among the humans of your earth, but I soon found I was not the equal of Og. He eluded my first rush. With his arms close against his sides, his body slipped between my outstretched hands. He mounted upward, a pink streak through the glaring water. I was after him. Up in the foliage, almost directly over the king, he hovered, waiting for me. The contemptuous smile on his face maddened me. As I came up, 
He turned sideways into a dive, but I gripped his ankle as it went past me. The crowd was shouting as we floundered, churning the water. I was trying to turn and clutch Og around the body, but he twisted away. I knew if I could once get him in my grip, I could crush him, but he seemed to know it also. I still held his ankle, and he did not try to kick himself loose. He seemed to be maneuvering for something. He was swimming forcibly downward now, using his arms but leaving his legs limp. It drew our bodies through the water in a single straight line, like one boat towing another. Then Og turned in a sharp circle. I still clung to him, and his body, bent like a bow, went over mine. The movement brought his head near my feet. One of his arms swept down, made a clutch for my ankle, but missed. I heard the shout of mingled horror and relief from the crowd. I was now above Og. Our turning movement confused me. The bottom of the arena was over my head in another instant. Then the side and top swung past. Og made another clutch at my ankles, and warned at last of some danger which I did not understand, I dropped him abruptly and swam away. He did not chase me, but turned over a few times more and then hovered in the center of the cube. Into the upper foliage I swam. I was breathing heavily. My chest seemed constricted. I was not physically able to undergo such exertion without distress. I realized it. The excess oxygen my blood was demanding could not be obtained by my lungs from water. I would have to get my grip around Og at once. Some of the spectators were now shouting at me derisively. They thought that after this first encounter, I was now afraid of my adversary. Afraid? I was beginning to be, in truth. I ground my teeth, and turning, head downward, again dove for Og. He waited quietly. He was tense again, his body slowly sinking. Ten feet from him I brought myself up short. We faced each other, both sinking gradually. Once he slid forward and made a pass at me with an arm but I drove away, returning at once. We were nearly at the bottom of the arena when Og suddenly threw all four arms above his head. His body was bent forward, crescent-shaped. It seemed to be my opportunity. I rushed at him. He retreated, and as I came into an upright position for another lunge, his body bent over me like a bow. One of his feet touched one of mine, and simultaneously his fingers struck my head. For a brief instant I was conscious that his touch seemed to burn. A tingling shock ran through me. Then, inert and unconscious, my stiffened body sank slowly to the bottom of the arena. Chapter 5 I recovered my senses and heard dim voices around me. I did not open my eyes, but lay quiet, half in a dream. I remembered the combat. I thought, perchance, I was dead. I recall now how vague musings floated through my brain. I had been alone on a meteor. Then I found people, civilization unhappiness and strife had come with them. To be really happy and at ease, one ought to be alone in his world. And yet there were friends to be found as well as enemies. There was Cain and the Marinoid Prince. He was my friend. He had warned me against Og. And there was love to be found, too. Nona. The thought of Nona stirred me to fuller consciousness. The voices around me seemed to grow louder. I opened my eyes. I was in a bunk at Cain's house. Cain was there beside me, and an old bent marinoid whose work I knew was the care and treatment of the human body in distress. Nona was sitting on the bunk close to me, her wonderful golden hair floated above us. Her face was white and set. As she saw me stir and open my eyes, she burst into sobs. My arms went up to pull her down to me. My Nona! And Cain, my friend Cain, was gravely joyful to see me come back to life. The old marinoid was talking quietly to Cain about me, and then he left. 
Nona lay in my arms. Presently the prince sent a messenger to inquire if I were recovered. My cup of happiness was full. It was far into the next time of sleep after the combat before I had regained my senses. And throughout all that time Nona and Cain had been beside me. I did not seem greatly injured. I was soon strong enough to talk with them, to find out what Og had done to me. It was simple, and when I understood it, I shuddered at the danger into which I had so rashly and ignorantly rushed. Og had shocked me into insensibility with a bolt of animal electricity. The bodies of all adult male marinoids contained special electrical organs for the generation of it. The bolt can be released at will. Its control is entirely voluntary. Og had maneuvered, I recalled at once, to get me into the right position to receive the maximum shock. His body was bent over me like a bow. He touched my extremities with his extremities simultaneously, and the current, passing through my body, had all but stopped the beating of my heart. Cain had thought I was on my guard regarding this. My words had made him think so, and I had refused to discuss the fight. And the prince had meant to warn me of it. I had indeed heard of this natural weapon possessed by the Marinoids, but in my youthful confidence I had forgotten it. For the use of it against a human, except in public mortal combat, was a dire offence against the Marinoid laws. The Electric Eel You are amazed, and perhaps incredulous, at this physiological fact? You need not be. A very similar condition occurs on your own earth. Indeed, only the ignorant can dare be rashly incredulous. In your own waters, as you would know if you ever bothered to apprise yourself of the fact, there exists the electric eel. Your learned men call it the Gemontus Electricus. It uses against its enemies very similar tactics to those Og used against me, and with very similar results, for it can kill or stun a fish much larger than itself. Many an ignorant native fisherman in the smaller streams which empty into your Orinoco River has learned this fact to his cost. And, to multiply instances, you have the torpedo, the whole family of rays. It was from them your scientist Galvani made his study of the electrical properties of muscles and nerves, applying his discoveries to the higher animals and to man. I was soon recovered, and a wiser man than before, and I swore to myself that never again would I ignore the proffered advice of a friend. My first desire was to fight Og again at once. With the knowledge of what I must avoid, I knew I could defeat him. I went to the place he lived, but he was not there. The news that I wanted another combat, which was my right, spread through the city. Og had doubtless hoped I would die. When I recovered and searched for him, he could not be found. After the next time of sleep, I learned he had left racks. Shellfish gatherers working under cane reported seeing him swimming alone toward the water of wild things. He did not return. The region known as the water of wild things was where he had been born, some said, and his only relations were among the half-savage beings there. I was content. With Og gone, my second fight with him, indeed, was postponed for a considerable time. There was nothing in Rax to disturb my own and my Nona's happiness. We had our home, our love, and our son. Chapter 6 You have heard enough, doubtless. Let it rest there. And perhaps you are annoyed at some of the things I say to you. I am an old man now and you earth people call me dogmatic. I am sorry. As you know, I have no patience with the man who scoffs because he is too ignorant to do otherwise. I assure you I tell you these facts of my early life only because you ask for them, and I think you may profit by reading them. A moral? Everything is full of morals. And if you will but apply some of them to your own life, 
you will be the gainer. End of section 3